0: Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Crypto collapse, yeah, uh, market meltdown, sure. But what does it mean? Because I'll tell you, it's bad news for our pensions. They're taking the worst beating they have in a generation. What about your RSP? I mean, how low can things go? We're going to talk about all of these issues today. And I also want to warn you, I was thinking the gloves are off. What's going on in the country and in the world are serious, and we can't afford to just sort of dance around the issues any longer. I've got True North Candace Malcolm joining us to share what worries her most about Canada's future. Plus my quote of the week, a top expert on China outs one of the biggest brand names insistence on helping the Chinese communist party. And we'll all know the name, I promise. Plus this week's goofy features the topper in the integrity calamity regarding the official response and reporting on the truckers convoy. But first, Before I make a brief comment, I just thought I should acknowledge that I have a higher standard for politicians who want to run the country, uh, create government policy than I do for the rest of us, because we're not trying to do that, especially when it comes to understanding the issues. I think they should know what they're talking about, but that's because I don't see how our most pressing problems, and there are many, I mean, we've been talking a lot about high energy and food prices, high inflation rate, record deficits, well, I don't see how they're going to be solved through ignorance. Now, I appreciate for many, a knowledge of the issues and research-based solutions is not their priority. They have other criteria for their politicians. But let me give you a specific example by asking a question. If you own a house and it goes up in value, do we say the house made money? Or what about if you happen to own something like a bike rental business, you had a great month, do we say the bike's making good money? Or is it the owner? Well, obviously, it's the owner. My point is that it's the same thing when it comes to companies. What seems to be very confusing for the anti-business crowd is that, as Laval economist Stephen Gordon explains, corporations can be big and they can be profitable, but they can't be wealthy. They're a form of wealth. I mean, claiming that wealthy corporations pay corporate income tax makes about as much sense as claiming that a rich building pays property taxes. But somehow, many people seem, well, to have a great deal of difficulty understanding that straightforward concept. Corporations don't pay tax on profits. They don't pay property taxes or any of the other numerous taxes. The owners do. The shareholders, who are often members, by the way, of a pension plan, who have an investment in the company, or they could be investors in mutual funds that own the shares. I mean, they're the ones who pay the taxes. And I don't want to get off on a tangent here but you also should understand that there's numerous research studies that conclude that workers also pay those taxes in the form of lower wages higher taxes there on the business the lower the wages but i'm not so sure why these fundamentals are so difficult for some people to understand but it brings me to NDP leader Jagmeet Singh's statement this week in a post regarding oil companies in quotes gas prices are up across canada why big oil ceos have been bragging about it billions in record profits since the start of 2022 you're paying 30 cents per liter more meanwhile shell and imperial tripled profits Uh, synovus energy increased profits sevenfold it's disgraceful end of quote well it's also clueless i mean saying that profits increase three times or seven times is absolutely meaningless i mean come on it would have been pretty tough for an oil company not to improve profits versus 2020 you had canada's oil western canada select trading it only in the mid to high 30s. I mean, they were losing money at that price. Pretty easy to beat. 2021, Western Canada Select traded in the 50s or lower for the first full nine months of the year of 2021 until demand picked up as pandemic restrictions started to ease and the fourth quarter did push prices over $60. Now, of course, I expect this year's quarterly results are going to be much better. Why? Because Western Canada Select Oil is as high as 90 bucks. So, yeah, 2022 quarters are going to beat 2021, just like it beat 2020. But what's noteworthy is that Mr. Singh and others in the anti-capitalist crowd think that profits are a bad thing. Does he think that losses are better? I mean, we wonder where they think money for wage increases or capital investment comes from. Certainly not companies losing money. I mean, Mr. Singh says their profits are disgraceful. Really? Really? This is from a politician who pushes an ever-expanding role for government, but he doesn't seem to understand that without profits, companies don't pay corporate income tax. No. The oil boom, especially in the last eight months, is a windfall for government. No other industry in the country is going to increase the taxes they send to Ottawa and to their provinces more. But it's more than that. I think it's astounding for the leader of the NDP, who's a partner in the federal liberal government, to not understand what's driving energy prices. And instead, he jumps on the oldest hobby horse in Canadian politics and blames it on greedy corporations, as if they set the international oil price. But it's also dangerous, though. Ideologically motivated attacks are not going to solve the energy crisis. They're going to make them worse. We have a supply shortage that was already in evidence well before the sanctions on Russia made it worse. Um, Do you think that trotting out shopworn cliches by the party that's a partner in the federal government is going to encourage capital investment? Because we need that if you want to see increased production. Do you think it's going to encourage it, though, especially after seven years of anti-fossil fuel rhetoric, rhetoric, which caused the shortage in the first place? And once again, I've got to mention the poor. It's so many politicians completely ignore them regardless of what their pretense is. It's the poor who pay the price for rising energy costs and the related increase in food food costs. I mean, the lack of understanding is a head shaker. And quickly, just one final point. Mr. Singh writes, since the start of 2022, you're paying 30 cents more per liter while oil companies' earnings took off. Well, let's be clear on one fact. Nobody makes more money than government from gasoline sales. Not the producers, not the refiners, not the retailers. And it's risk-free. I mean, governments don't put up any money, they just collect, including federal and provincial excise taxes, carbon taxes, provincial sales taxes, extra levies in municipalities like Vancouver and Victoria, and a big favourite, GST, on all those taxes. All of it is why Vancouver pays the highest price of the pump in North America, with Victoria and Montreal giving chase. But more the bigger point is this. It's time to drop that old ideology. Figure out what's going on get the research, look at what the real solutions are. Instead, I think we're gonna make the problems far worse. As I said, we got lots planned for you in today's show, but just before we get there, I'd mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, I'd love to see some people respond to it, but I'm chairman of the Special Olympics Golf Tournament. It's one of, uh, what, I think just three, well, actually two public events Special Olympic does to raise money, and I need a little help with it. I need help with auction items, and we need help with what we call tea sponsorships, like you put a sign on the tea, et cetera, that's $1,500. But we need help with some auction items. If you can help out, please do. Uh, you can get all the information at mikesmoneytalks.ca. Well, it's hardly a news flash to say that Record high gasoline prices have people's attention, although I'm not convinced people understand why we have those prices, but let's leave it at that. But we have record high gasoline prices. What's interesting is it's supporting another aspect of economics, and that is when prices change, behavior changes. So, for example, I saw... A survey coming out uh, earlier this week that basically said a lot of people are reevaluating their summer road trip plans. They're going to do something different. Well, there's more than that. Some fundamental shifts happening. I want to bring Michael Levy on to discuss it. And, you know, I'm hardly surprised at this, Mike, that high gasoline prices at least brings electric cars into the conversation.
1: Well, it does, Mike. And the reason being is now electric cars, in some cases, are competing head-to-head with your standard uh, internal combustion gasoline engine cars. You can buy an EV, either a small SUV or a sedan, and you can do it for under $40,000. And one of the caveats that people wanted to be able to see in an electric vehicle is if they could go somewhere between 350 to 400 kilometers on a full charge, and Kia, Hyundai, Nissan, and several others have now got those in mass production. And, you know, people are saying, okay, high gas prices, maybe this is an alternative.
0: Well, of course, and let's not forget, the government is providing a $5,000 incentive, and it can be higher depending on your province. I mean, that makes uh, things a little more attractive. And We could have a debate whether that's money well spent. In fact, I've read just so just to make it a little more controversial, Mike, I've read lots of studies that said, if your goal is to reduce emissions, that's one of the least efficient ways of doing it. So that's one side. Plus, isn't that nice that we are subsidizing electric vehicles paid for by people who could never afford one? You know, (laughs) because we know who's buying them. That's for sure. So at any rate, but but your point is very well taken. It's created this shift. And uh, let's face it, I mean, other than Tesla for going back several years. We've had some sort of movement on that regard, but at least like it looks explosive in the
1: manufacturing side of the automotive industry. It does. And Volkswagen seems to be the leader. And Volkswagen, for your car that is affordable, not your luxury cars that are over $100,000, but your affordable cars, you've got some of your major automakers stepping up production. Uh, Volkswagen, uh, basically uh, has backlog of orders in Western Europe, Mike, of 300,000 vehicles. They are sold out of EVs until into next year. The same thing with Mercedes. They are late to the game. They've come out with an electric sedan, an electric SUV, a very luxury one. They also are sold out for the next year. Uh, the, the fact is, is that people are taking a look and saying, okay, If I can get the 350 to 400 kilometers, if there's enough charging stations, which for the number of EVs on the road right now, there probably is. And the fact you can plug it in in your garage. Well, that's if they can get one. And I'm serious.
0: That's (laughs) a huge problem is the waiting list. Now, we're reading a lot of stuff anecdotally about that. Uh, But Ford 150 electric, you know, I mean, that's been hugely popular. You know, so they say we're ramping up production, but I can't get one. And that's the story in a lot of the EVs, which is just kind of interesting. I mean, the backlog of orders, uh, you mentioned Volkswagen. I know they've made a big push into electric vehicles, but again, can I get one?
1: Well, you know, if you take a look at this KPMG poll, Mike, 71, this surprised me, by the way, 71% of Canadians would consider purchasing an EV as their next vehicle. I I just, uh, you know, it's interesting, just
0: so you know, the, the most hate mail I think I've ever received, and I've had my share. Was talking about that they can't expand the the infrastructure near enough uh, because we don't have the uh, rare earth minerals to produce the cars. We don't have the copper, the nickel, the lithium, uh, the cobalt. The list goes on, and we still don't. So that's also going to slow down any EV revolution.
1: Traditional car makers are looking to pair or to get into business with one of the technology companies, as Ford did when they uh, got into Rivian, um, the uh, new startup last year, uh, making a beautiful looking um, SUV. And the fact is, is that they found difficulties too, is you can have all the hope you want, but it takes a heck of a lot to manufacture. And they just got behind the eight ball. In fact, their stock is down some 88% this year from the ipo and ford who was one of the investors dumped about 10% of their stock so it's not all just roses but there is a dramatic change coming to the landscape
0: yeah it's a, the cases though the number of years production problems uh, i'm not even going to get into uh, depending on what the power source is and the the uh, emissions that are produced in the manufacturing process, whether that's actually going to accomplish the goals in an emissions sense. But uh, you can have the last word, Mark. Mike.
1: As the other mainstream companies come online and are producing, is Tesla going to be the market leader as they are now? And I know people have talked about the demise of Tesla over the years, but real competition for Tesla could make a huge difference. Time now for the quote
0: of the week. First, I'll give you a little context. Two of the most uncomfortable facts I think that most in business and government are reluctant to acknowledge are, one, any thought that opening trade and business with China and Russia would result in the liberalization of those countries has been proven wrong. Well, actually, dead wrong, with the emphasis on the word dead when it comes to human rights abuses, weaker concentration camps, and Russian atrocities in Ukraine, and two, Doing business in China and Russia hasn't just failed to liberalize those countries, it's actually financed their military, including the invasion of Ukraine and China's police state and their assault on human rights. And no sign it bothers some companies, at least companies like Apple, who have been accused of turning a blind eye to companies using slave labor to brew some of their supply chain component parts. In December, by the way, it was revealed that despite the blatant human rights abuses, remember all the spotlight on the Uyghur genocide at that point? Well, Tim Cook and Apple signed a secret $275 billion deal last December. As I said, December, with China's Communist Party. Which brings me to the quote of the week by Kyle Bass, Chief Investment Officer of Heyman Capital. And he's got an acknowledged expertise in China and global affairs. In 2019, he received the Foreign Policy Association Medal for responsible internationalism. So think of this when you look at your iPhone, your iPad, your Mac, in quotes, Apple is hiring engineers away from its Western suppliers to help Chinese state-owned Yangtze Memory Technologies Corporation meet its iPhone specs and therefore displace Apple's Western suppliers. Yangtze Memory Technologies got into the membership market through heavily state uh, funding. This is no doubt the result of Communist Party pressure on Apple and Tim Cook, but he's working hard to undermine U.S. national security for a few more dollars in profits for shareholders. This mirrors what happened with Huawei many years ago when foreign companies helped Huawei to meet their specs, and they got hooked on China's price, not to mention stolen Western IP to help rapidly scale Huawei's business. U.S. companies, especially Apple, should not be allowed to repeat this horrible, miscalculated mistake and help to scale Yangtze's memory technology corporation's business and displace Western companies in the process, end of quote. You know, at some point, we're going to have to have a close examination of doing business in China. Obviously, that's already happening in Russia. And you see so many companies having to react to the invasion of Ukraine and withdraw, and they lose a lot of money doing it. But I don't see how that's not coming to China. And I think all of us, though, have something to do in this regard. I don't run a company, but I can certainly say I'm going to start figuring out where the products I buy are produced. Well, I've been looking forward to getting a chance to talk with Candace Malcolm. She's the founder. She's the leader of True North. Candace, first of all, I do appreciate you taking time because you have been busy. I was watching you just the other day. uh, Was it last uh, week Thursday? You know, you're doing uh, moderating the conservative leaders debate.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me on, Michael. It's a great honor. I've been a long-time listener of your show, and so is my whole family in Vancouver, so I appreciate it. Yeah, I was given the uh, honor and privilege of de- uh, moderating the first conservative debate, which happened in Ottawa at the Canada Strong and Free Conference. And it was just a really fun opportunity. I thought it was a really entertaining uh, evening and, and debate. You know, the whole idea of a debate is to have a contrast of ideas and visions of the country. And it was combative at times, which is what you want as, as a journalist. You, you know, you wanna keep it interesting. You wanna keep the audience engaged. And I think we really uh, were able to cover a lot of grounds and, and really ask a lot of questions. So I was, I was really happy for that opportunity and I was happy with the way that the uh, evening played out.
0: Well, let me ask you what uh, your takeaway was on what those candidates think are the big issues facing Canada. I would assume they, I I know you addressed and chose the questions, et cetera, but, you know, the big issues that they think, because a lot of times people in that position, uh, no matter what the party is, don't seem to know what the rest of us are thinking.
2: Absolutely. And I think that that is a big problem for politicians. I think that's part of the reason why we're having a conservative leadership debate right now is because a former leader, Erin O'Toole, was incredibly out of touch, not just with the Canadian public but with the party base who were very unhappy with the way that he reacted in, namely to the trucker convoy. So we had this trucker convoy this protest movement show up in Ottawa it was obviously tapping in to a uh, sense of, of uh, you know, a, a great concern that so many Canadians were having whether it be that they felt left behind in the new economy that they totally disagreed with the way that COVID was handled in management uh, the way that they felt that it was punitive against people who have to go out into the real world and work uh, versus those of us who are fortunate to fortunate enough to do our jobs from our laptops and work from home you know there, there are all these problems that are bubbling over the former conservative leader didn't really take it seriously tried to dismiss it in the same way as most of the elites in our society did uh, the leaders of all the other parties and for the conservatives it just that was not acceptable and so he was ousted and i think because of that michael the contenders uh for leader now are very aware of that. And I think they're working hard to try to connect with the conservative base, connect with those disaffected working class Canadians who feel left behind, and, and really try to tap into whatever that frustration is. And, and, and I think we saw that, namely from uh, a few candidates Pierre Polyev, Roman Baber, and Leslie Lewis. They were sort of the spark uh, that, w- that was really talking about it. The other two candidates on the stage, Jean Charet, who is a former Quebec premier, and Scott Aitchison, who's a member of parliament from Ontario. Uh, they were sort of taking the other side that you know conservatives should be polite and that we shouldn't uh, that, that that conservatives shouldn't engage in in this kind of ruckus behavior and that the truckers were a lawless embarrassment. Uh, you know, regardless of what what you think of the truckers, in the end, you know w- what happened at weeks and weeks into the protest and how it sort of digressed into chaos. And and you might not have agreed with everything they were saying. There was lots of people with lots of opinions go- going in different directions. It's hard to say. Exactly, you know, if you agree or disagree with all of them, um, but but certainly trying to tap into that frustration, tap into that sentiment um, that there's a lot of people who are just not happy with the status quo and the direction of this country.
0: Yeah, I thought the choice to dismiss them, rather acknowledge them, not necessarily agree with them, was a major mistake that is rippling through our country. Uh, you know, part of the divisions we already felt, and you, you alluded to one that I think is different. We have all know about the East-West division. You know, I mean, that's longstanding. Maybe a little bit we know or, or most are aware of sort of the oil patch versus urban Quebec and Toronto, you know, as as just – maybe too loosely framed, but that general. But what I think came up out of COVID is exactly what you alluded to, that there was this in quotes, laptop class. I was lucky. My life was not disrupted. You know, if you know what I mean, I mean, obviously we didn't see friends the way we did, but I think it's a very different thing to think somehow that I couldn't go to a party or have eight people over is the same as someone losing their job. Number one, uh, having that uncertainty, uh, maybe living in a small living space with two kids it's not the same thing whatsoever and i felt that needed to be acknowledged and i thought way too many people were insensitive to it
2: well exactly it's easy for someone like a journalist or a political commentator to say okay everybody let's stay at home to flatten the curve we all have our role to play you know it's a lot harder for someone who has to go out to make a living and we we spend a lot of time sort of applauding and perhaps virtue signaling on social media uh, how we we're so thankful for the frontline workers you know we uh, in my neighborhood in toronto anyway uh, people would go out on their patio and bang pots and pans yeah. at seven o'clock every night to thank the the frontline workers and the nurses and we sort of had this feigned empathy uh towards them and yet you know as covid wore on and and as we saw a lot of the effects of you know forcing people to stay home not allowing them to go to work making small businesses fail, forcing little kids and children to forego the most important experiences of their young developing lives. So many people were put in a situation that was unbearable, Michael. And, and not just that, I mean, think about people who were struggling at the margins, people who relied on counseling, people who relied on going to AA meetings, people who needed to connect with their church or their friends, they, you know the complete lack of social networks, You know they just came crumbling apart because we didn't have those opportunities. The things that bring meaning in people's lives and you know it's, it's one thing to say we're all going to be responsible we're going to stay at home to save lives it, it's another thing to really look and analyze the sort of second and third order impacts of forcing people to forego those relationships and those meaningful relationships and you you can see the data bear out very sadly when you look at things um like Suicide rates and depression and alcoholism and drug overdoses, uh, all of those things that were disproportionately impacting young Canadians. In fact, uh, I believe there's a statistic that more people died of drug overdoses um, under the age of, I think, 40 or 45 than, than COVID. So. It, we we really created a lot of a mess uh, over the last two years. I think the country is, to your point, divided and fractured and and, and collapsing in many ways. We don't really address it. We sort of say, okay, COVID's. Let's time to move on, or you know, let's let's drop the mask mandate and get on with our lives. I think I think we need to stop and acknowledge what we just went through. Uh, I think we need to do a full rehash. I think the political class bears a lot of explaining and and responsibility for what has happened. We need to go through, figure out what happened why, and make sure that we don't repeat these mistakes again, and then start to mend uh, the the fabric of our society that's been fraying over the last two years.
0: Well, I I think dialogue was not a goal. You know, I didn't see a meaningful change. I think what some of the frustration I sensed was people felt they weren't getting the full story. You know, if they had concerns, questions were not allowed. And I fault much of the media for that. I I was absolutely astounded. I said, uh, we've got stenographers there and not reporters any longer. So, you know, let me ask you where you fit Uh, the divisions within the country on your priority list of challenges going forward?
2: Well, I think there's so many issues that, that could, pop up, I think that there is a growing lack of trust in the sort of central institutions of our democracy that again, are elites, the sort of what Pierre Polyev calls the gatekeepers the people who set the rules uh, incredibly out of touch with, with the concerns of everyday people like if you tuned into the, the news and the media, you, you know, you might get the impression that whatever's happening in the US with Roe versus Way is the biggest story in the world or or uh, conflict in Ukraine that's half a world apart, Way is the biggest story in the world. Uh, you know, when you talk to everyday people. They're really concerned about the price of gas, the price of food, the price of rent, the price of homes, like an entire generation of young Canadians feeling like they have no opportunity to ever have the Canadian dream, the the, the opportunities that their parents had. They're never going to be able to buy a house. They're never going to have a stable and fulfilling job. They may, never have, uh, they may not believe in marriage and they might not ever have that sort of ability to create a family, create a community of their own, or they might not be interested in in that. I, I think that some of the very core Elements of our society are starting to frame, Michael, and I think that it 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 starts with a lack of trust in the system, in the institutions. You can see it in the media. I mean, the reason that I started my own media company is because I used to work in the legacy media was a journalist and I wrote for the Toronto Sun for many years, and it's remarkable the sort of go to you know, experts say, experts say, experts say, it's always led by experts. And I think a lot of people are sort of sick and tired of experts, so-called experts, nameless, faceless technocrats, uh, telling them what to do, telling them what's good for them, telling them what's right for them, and not and them not being able to sort of live out the things that that they want, which for most people, it's, you know, have a job that you enjoy. Be able to buy a house, you know, be able to have a family—all those kind of things—that um, are increasingly out of reach for for so many so many people. And rather than listen to these people and try to engage with them, uh, we hear a lot of sneering and hectoring about how, you know, with regards to the trucker convoy, you know, the, the prime minister comes out and says these people are Nazis, these people are racists, these people are extremists. You know, during the twenty twenty one election campaign, we were told that uh, people who were unvaccinated. Uh, we shouldn 't tolerate them in our society that they are racists and sexist and uh, extremists who don 't believe in science, like rather than trying to listen to people and understand people with whom we may disagree uh, there 's this n- new sort of impulse to just completely discredit them, silence them, say that they don 't matter they don 't exist, and further further marginalize them
0: One of the things that 's interesting uh, Alan what you're saying about uh, what people want, and I think obviously they started to notice inflation because they noticed it at the gas pump. You know, they notice it, uh, you know, in the grocery store. And these are the real things. You know, so someone like myself who's got that sort of economic bent, I'm saying, yeah, it's not it, – it had to happen. You know, look at their policies, you know. But now people are noticing, and I think that's going to create further dislocation for people. And, I, and your talk of insensitivity rings so true to me. Like when I watched uh, COP26 back in November, I'm sitting there as someone who's lived in India going, are you kidding me? Are, are you serious about these policies? You realize how many people are in India, in the world, without sufficient power, electricity, that kind of stuff. And, and of course, uh, Prime Minister Modi pointed that out when they were leaving. But it, to me, it I've, I can't recall a more elitist time. Like, there's nothing in the policies that have produced high gasoline prices, high, home heating oil, high diesel, that are impacting the very people making those decisions.
2: I, I think that's right. And I, I think it's people are being hit sort of double hard because a lot of people who suffered through COVID, people who were wage earners, people who worked at restaurants and bars who got laid off or small business owners. I mean, we we, we covered so many stories at True North of, you know, people who own gyms, people who own small businesses that just they, they didn't have a lifeline. They didn't have the support that they needed. And, you know, m- many of them, their businesses didn't didn't survive. And 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 now you know we have this inflationary uh, disaster in front of us, and it was completely predictable. I mean, what do you think is yeah. going to happen when you run a five hundred uh, billion dollar deficit and you start printing money like there's no tomorrow? Uh, but again, you know, Trudeau now just sort of shrugs his shoulders and says that those are global forces. It's like, yeah, they're global forces because a lot of Western liberal democracies had the same policy of 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 running massive deficits to pay for some of these programs during COVID. And and then also printing printing of money. So you know, people who are just hit hard with COVID are going to be hit hard again with inflation. And I think I think it's apt to call it an inflation tax because it comes from government mismanagement. And I just have to circle it back again to to the media and their sort of lack of really holding a government to account, uh, criticizing Trudeau for what he's doing letting it be known that his policies are indeed connected to what is happening. I think too often the Liberals will explain something away and then the media will just sort of cover it that way and move on and we don't get the proper scrutiny and and proper holding to account that Canadians deserve uh, from their media. Instead, something that really worries me is the fact that the Trudeau government is increasingly subsidizing and funding the media. We've seen CBC massively have an increase in their... Uh, english news services due to trudeau pledging more and more money every time there's an election there's a 600 million dollar newspaper bailout uh, so, so now you know it's it's hard to it's hard to imagine that the journalists who are charged with holding the government to account scrutinizing their their spending scrutinizing their policies um are also in many ways reliant upon trudeau for this benevolent bailout that he is giving it's not actually helping because Everyone, you know, you you know, you have an economics background. When you subsidize a failing product, you're just going to prolong the the bad decision-making that stops the innovation and stops the growth. I mean, my organization, True North, we found a successful business model. We don't take a cent from the Trudeau government. And we found an audience and we found a business model that works.
0: But uh, it's interesting, Blacklock's reporter, who does a fabulous job, uh, had a piece out earlier this week that was... Uh, showing that in fact that media bailout just an fyi for people is didn't stop the layoffs you know if that was the point to you know subsidize to protect et cetera, it didn't stop the layoffs. so it, alan what well, your point is if you don't have the right formula it won't matter what the ingredients are added to it so uh yeah I, it's a big point let me finish with this well actually i, I want to finish with one other thing first so, true north What's it been like? I mean, you started that thing from scratch, which I think is forget all this other stuff. This is an entrepreneurial story. That uh what have you learned most or the biggest surprise you had in creating uh, uh True North?
2: TNC.news, if anyone's from oh, China. Yeah, we didn't we didn't get the com, we got the dot yeah. news. So TNC the letters you. true north center news. It's been it's been a wild ride, Michael. I I I first started True North to do sort of deep investigative journalism in the area of sort of immigration and foreign policy that was my own research background and I didn't feel that even at my newspaper that I worked for sun media uh, we had the resources to to really fund the kind of research that was necessary so i, I initially it was it was sort of more of a niche uh, deep dive kind of investigative shop and basically what i did was just listen to my audience listen to the people who were who were funding true north which are you know, were entirely donation based business mm-hmm. and so many of the people that were funding us were like you know what we really like is your original reporting uh we we really like uh, issues more more so than just immigration so we sort of slowly expanded and i think a big key to that is the fact that we listen uh to canadians we listen to our base and our audience and and, and take feedback and I, I find it just maybe this is just an aside but i find it so interesting to look at the sort of big players in the media and how sort of closed off they are you know a lot of them uh don't re- re- don't allow any comments on their youtube channel and they don't allow any replies on twitter and you know they're very insular and, and shut off and, and i get it you know there's a lot of vitriol and a lot of abuse that you get online especially as a woman but you have to listen to your audience you have to Make sure that you're you're. T- T- covering the topics that are important, and you have to measure things, and you have to look at the metrics, and you have to read the feedback in order to go in the right direction. And so, I think I think one of the reasons that True North has been successful is just we just engage with our audience, we listen, we cover the stories uh, that are needed, and we really try to tell the other side of the story that is not being told and listened uh, told in the legacy media. Is so often the legacy media is in lockstep; they all agree, they all say the same opinion, they cover the same stories. It, it's very predictable and you know because of that if if you have a bit of originality or you're interested in something different and you know you want to go in a different direction it's pretty easy because there's so much low hanging fruit so we we've been really fortunate we've been able to tap into into a market and uh, you know it's it's incredibly exciting we 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 doubled in size last year we I, I think we have more than a dozen journalists now across the country we you know are, are reaching more and more Canadians uh every day podcasts every day, lots of original news reporting. Uh, it's, it's, it's really fun. And, and again, it shows that there is an audience. There is a demand for independent original news in Canada. There are people who are willing to pay for it. Uh, we don't need the government to be involved in censoring and in regulating and in bailing out media. In, in fact, I think the opposite is what is needed. The media, need, the media needs to be independent. The federal government needs to get his hands out of the journalism business, it will give journalists much more credibility, and it will force them to innovate and find a market, find an audience. And and I I, I hope that's the direction that we go in.
0: Well, you're to be congratulated for making a go of it. It is not easy, especially in the environment we've been experiencing for a number of years, the competition being subsidized by government. And uh, as I say, there's an appetite. Uh, You've served it. Your audience continues to grow. Congratulations. And a big, big thank you for finding time for us.
2: Great. Right, well, thank you so much. It was a privilege, and uh, we'll have to get you onto my podcast one day, Mike. I would love to have you on.
0: I can talk the year off a dead dog about that economic <laughs> stuff. Thanks, Candice. Great. <laughs> right, thank you. Time now for the shocking stat of the week, and it's a straightforward one. As we've chronicled on Money Talks for well, the last two months, the central banks want to get interest. Uh, rather get inflation under control, not only with increasing interest rates to reduce demand, but they also want to reduce asset prices, specifically in stocks, in order to impact what's called the wealth effect. That's when people see the price of their house or stocks go up, they actually feel wealthier, and hence they're likely to go out and spend more. We featured the statement by Bill Dudley, former president of New York Federal Reserve, several times in order to give you a warning. He said, in quotes, one way or another, to get inflation under control, the Fed will need to push bond yields higher and stock prices lower. That's certainly happening, and in many cases, to a shocking degree. few examples. Rivian Automotive's market cap peaked at $153 billion, and that was shortly after it went public last November. It since dropped 88%. I was mentioning this with Michael. Now valued at $18 billion. Wow. So far, Netflix is down 72% this year. Shopify down 77% this year. PayPal down 60%. Even blue chip stocks like Amazon, well, it's down 37%. Google's down 22%. Of course, that looks awfully good compared to Peloton, down 90%, but you get the idea. Last year's high flyers are getting killed in many instances, including the bull market Darling Arc, which has now given up all the gains it made in the last four years. So what's my shocking stat if all of that is not shocking enough? It's the cumulative impact of the market declines. The stat, $35 trillion lost in market valuation since the beginning of this year. And that, by the way, doesn't include non-financial assets like housing, but does include uh, some of the huge losses uh, in crypto. But that represents about 14% of all global wealth gone which is starting to rival what happened in 2008. That was 19%, but that also included housing, so we're probably closer than it looks. But 14% of all global wealth has been evaporated, and that is going to have some significant impact. Well, it probably already is. I was chatting to someone the other day about forecasting, and I said, you know, unless you've got a crystal ball that's, uh, you know, perfect, What you need to do is when you think something might be happening, when you think you're on a way to that destination, you set up little signposts to say checkmark, checkmark, checkmark. In this case, we've been talking about the top in the real estate market with Ozzy Jurek. I think we started in the first week of February. But you have to say, okay, are we there? So what kind of things would you look for to sort of validate that uh, opinion or forecast? Well, you'd look at, uh, we said at the time, when I start seeing listings go way up, because without that, it ain't happening. Well, we're starting to see all sorts of things that uh, sort of validate the thought that we were in, the high was in place with Ozzy Juric, as he stated it on February 9th on the show. Ozzy, I'm going to bring him in right now. So Ozzy, I mean, obviously the conviction that we have seen the high for this cycle has to be stronger than ever.
3: That's funny, you know. Forecasting is never easy, particularly where it is about the future. <laughs> but I think the idea of the high being in place was my headline in my OzBuzz uh, uh, blog, and the reason was very simple. Yes, we had uh, still lower listings uh, than we had last year, but we had much higher listings than we had in 2019 pre-COVID, and we had certainly both on an active site and a and a new listing site. We had a, a building uh, of uh, Inventory And at the same time, sales started to plummet. I mean, in, the, in Surrey, for instance, February, we were uh, January, February, March, April, every single month we were down in sales by 20 to 37% by April. So it was just continuing. And now we're seeing it in prices. The high in prices in February was a million nine for a single family home in Surrey, went down to a million eight. In, in April, uh, in uh, in March and in, in April, it's a million seven. That's a hundred, and I'm not saying it's going to continue like that. I'm just saying we had the high.
0: Well, as we said last week with the outlier being in nice to see in Alberta, you know, the outlier being in Alberta where their prices are stronger, where the activity was stronger. And I think it's not a stretch to link it to the strength in the energy markets, you know, over the last uh, six months. Anyways, uh, but the other thing thing is this, is that uh, look at those mortgage rates. I mean, I I can at least go down to the States and have a look at them. My goodness, their most popular rate has exploded.
3: Well, and that's right. In the United States, we're always surprised to hear about a 30-year rate. But that is what a 95% of all mortgages have that 30-year rate. Well, it was in January about 2.7%, and it went to as high as 5.7% last week. Well, I'm talking to a broker in Phoenix, uh, Todd Smith, who I've known know for 12 years. And he says, the average increase in mortgage payments in the city of uh, Phoenix, if you look at all the averages on based on the mortgage book that they have, has gone up by $462 per month. Now, Michael, it may not be so much for the average Vancouverite, who has a $2,000 payment, but in Phoenix, that is a deal breaker.
0: Well, also after-tax dollars in Canada, not so in the States, not so in the States, but after-tax dollars in Canada. Ozzy, uh, one of the other signs that we looked at that we sort of started to talk about about a year ago or more was that, you know, we used to have all these come-ons, like, come and buy this condo and we'll give you the furniture. We'll, do, we'll paint the house whatever it is. That was stopped, of course, so they didn't need to do anything when the market was so hot. But I'm starting to see the odd thing coming up again that way.
3: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. And in my newsletter, I talk about the four pillars of what values are doing. One, of course, is inflation. Number two is timing. And we are at the peak of time now. And number three is the trend. And the fourth is cycles. And the cycle for developers is clearly changing because they are advertising deposits at 5%. At least some of them do. And even raffling off a car. And we've heard that before. And they don't do that because they love you. (laughs)
0: Okay, I want to switch a bit. You mentioned inflation. Obviously, it's the number one concern for Canadians. And we've been, obviously, with Ozzy Jurek and OzBuzz.ca, you talk about housing prices, et cetera, but we also talk about rents. And Ozzy, I wanted to come back to that because I don't think the rent increases are fully uh, incorporated in when we get a a consumer price index. And that's why I, I sort of laugh because I care about the individual. I don't care about a stat. The stat gives me a direction maybe, but you know what? It's what am I paying for food? What am I paying for energy? And what am I paying to rent a house? You got some late numbers on that.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, it comes from rentals.ca. So wherever you are listening to, they have every single city and most suburbs in Canada. And you take Surrey, for instance, if you look at a one-bedroom home, it's up about 8% at $1,500. So I think that's not too bad. But then you go into the average two-bedroom increase, it's up 21% of rental now at 1,956. So, wow, you say, that's big. Now, Vancouver's two-bedroom is up 18% at an average price of 3200 for a two-bedroom rental suite. Let me throw some others at you, though, because, I mean, listen to those numbers. And I'm not surprised,
0: by the way, uh, the two-bedroom, and if we ha- they don't have the three-bedroom numbers, because you hear about that complaint from families all the time. You know, that I can't get something big enough. And uh, again, we could delve into the uh, development industry and see why it's more profitable to maybe build bachelors or, you know, smaller units, you know, all of that stuff. We'll leave that because we're talking rents here. What about
3: Calgary, though, and Calgary and Edmonton? Thank you. Calgary has had a huge increase in sales, uh, as we talked about last week. But the rental for a two-bedroom unit is up a whopping 17 to 17% to 17 at the same time. Now, the actual price is only 1700 but a 17% increase, and the market is popping because, as you always point out, market is 90% psychology, and the psychology in Alberta is, hey, things are getting better. Ours is going to change to the other side.
0: Just quickly, let's go across the country for a second. Let's jump into Toronto, because I got a feeling that so much policy, is in uh, housing policy, policy, et cetera, at the federal level, is influenced by what's going on in back east. So do you have Toronto there?
3: Toronto is kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, it's about the same. It's up 10% in a one-bedroom at just over $2,000 a month and 16% for a two-bedroom at 2776 an interesting, so too, is for the average rental uh, person that's looking for a rental, if you take Burnaby, the one-bedroom rental is up 16% at just under 2,000, but the two-bedroom is up up only 10%. So wherever you are, you have to take a look at your suburb and saying, what is the predominant of, of prices there? So in Burnaby, there's fewer one-bedrooms available, so it's actually gone up more. So take a good hard look, do some haggling.
0: But, you know, the point also being this is definitely every one of those increases is definitely significantly higher than the official, uh, you know, consumer price index. Of course, it measures many other things. But again, I'm always on about, hey, you can't avoid food, you can't avoid shelter and you can't avoid energy. So we've had a massive increase. That's why I wanted to deal with that. Ozzy, thanks so much. Great stuff. People go to OzBuzz.ca. That's where you get this stuff.
3: Yeah, and that'll be just a new one is just out tonight. Uh, so make sure that you sign in on it. And Ma- Mike, these are interesting times. So trust in Allah, but tie up your camel.
0: Couldn't help but think of the old Chinese proverb, may you live in interesting times. Well, we sure are. I'm just looking across the board. I'd mentioned earlier about, you know, look at the carnage in the crypto space. You know, not unbelievable, but it's just a shocking amount. I, I talked earlier about some of the stock declines, et cetera. I thought, well, let's get Victor Adair in here. He's been watching it on a momentary basis, live from the trading desk. Vic, I mean... I don't know if you feel like I do but I've just been so busy. There's just so much stuff coming at us in so many different markets. But the one I want to start with is the more North American stock indexes. We've actually been chronicling since last August the internals being very different than what the indexes were thanks to, you know, everybody's following Amazon and the big, you know, the big fang stocks and we're saying, well look inside. There's some people getting killed here. Well that's pretty blatant now, I really since uh, the, the amount of money some of these stocks are off, as I said in the shocking start, a stock, something like $35 trillion been lost globally in equities.
4: Well, uh, the main indices, the Dow and the S&P, for instance, I should say that the S&P down, I, I think we've got 20% down this week. So that's the official bear market level. But we've been down for six weeks in a row. And uh, I think a lot of the folks see that uh, the, the indices peaked out at the beginning of this year and have been trending lower. My thinking is the stock market actually peaked out about a year ago, but not the broad indices as as capital started to rotate away from the more speculative end of the market and headed toward more value or let's say defensive kind of positioning. Whatever uh, we've had uh, and the Toronto market, you know, remained the hottest market in the year, in in the world, I should say, earlier this year. And it's had a a pretty steep correction here, too. There's been a shift in sentiment, clearly, Mike. Uh, I mean, some of the metrics I look at, we've got the bearish sentiment on the stock market is about as high as it's been since the crash way back in 1987. Now, there's all kinds of metrics, but, you know, that's the one that I noted And just anecdotally, you can see that a lot of people are really concerned here with what's happening.
0: Well, you say anecdotally, you're absolutely right. I fielded phone calls this week from people saying, should I get out of my index funds and things like that? And my first thought to myself is something like, you're asking me now? Really? Now you're at that happens all the time, Vic, though. You know, after the horse has left the barn, my phone starts ringing, you know, in the old fashioned way. And uh, this is just, to me, something that you said a few weeks ago, is that you make your money by managing your risk. Uh, I'm not that sympathetic to people who weren't managing their risk in a more efficient way. No one knew what the markets were. I mean, I'm not presenting that I knew what the markets were going to do, but I am presenting that I knew that the risk had elevated. I was presenting that we saw risk inside the market and signs. We got the central bank basically saying, hey, I blew up this bubble, now I'm going to blow it down, like literally saying I want stocks down. I think it's pretty tough to find an excuse not to have taken some money out of this market well before now.
4: Well, like that's what people have been doing. I mean, if you wanted to say what's the reason that the stock markets have been trending down here for the last six weeks, it would be they're trying to reprice their expectations as to what the Federal Reserve is going to do. And we've had Jay Powell out this week, the head of the Fed, saying, acknowledging perhaps, There's going to be some pain as we try to get inflation down. The central bank has acknowledged they can't do anything about the supply shortage input that's caused inflation. One thing they can do is they can kill demand by hitting the economy with higher interest rates and more restrictive policy.
0: Yeah, and still killing that so-called wealth effect. You know, that, uh, you know, when people feel rich, they go out and spend, you know, my stock's up, my house is worth a fortune, you know, all of those things. Well, by changing that psychology, he'll get what he wants. So he's doing it the two prong way. Let's let's get after people's feeling of wealth. And as you just said, uh, let's bring some stock prices down and demand down.
4: We know that wages have been going up, but they haven't been going up as fast as prices. Something I saw this week that was very interesting, we have some of the the major banks track and and release the information on a daily basis about how much people are using their credit cards. What we're seeing here in the past month is that people are putting more uh, bills into their credit card than we've seen in a long time. The increase has been very sharp. So what I'm thinking is, People are sustaining their spending, but they're doing it on credit, and that might not last long, and that's where we start to think of, will we? Will the Federal Reserve push us into a recession as they try to kill demand?
0: Well, and, and that's certainly, I, I think the consensus I'm reading out there, Vic, is there's no soft landing, and anyone who I know is commenting on it, I'm talking people who've been former presidents of different uh, uh, Federal Reserve banks, that kind of thing, saying, Boy, that soft lending is a very small percentage of probability. You know, that's not very likely. So I I, mean, I look at the housing market in the States already. Uh, I look at the mortgage rates going up, the 30 years, the most positive or, or, or pro, uh, popular. Man, I don't, you know, I think they're getting there may, maybe a lot faster than they thought they would.
4: In terms of the demand destruction, for yeah. sure. So, you know, here we are. We've had the stock market down for six weeks. A flip side of of the same coin to me is we've had the U.S. dollar up for six weeks. That's the U.S. dollar index against a basket of currencies. We've got the U.S. dollar index here at a 20-year high. For instance, the Bank of Japan keeps saying that they're going to just keep interest rates really low. So the, the cur- that currency has fallen to a 20-year low against the U.S. dollar. But the euro this week, this time, the bottom sort of fell out of the euro. They've got problems of their own in the EC, Let's call it Ukraine's, It's certainly an issue. But it looks as though the ECB is much slower than the Federal Reserve. And we've just also in the currency markets, Mike, They develop a momentum, and my experience of trading currencies for 40-some years has been that the trends are just so strong, and they seem to go way further than makes any sense before they turn. So we've had this terrific run here, the U.S. dollar.
0: Well, that discrepancy between U.S. interest rates and European interest rates, I don't see that closing the Euro, European Central Bank hasn't talked about raising rates, and the reason though, one of the reasons at least is obvious, their energy costs have gone through the roof, which is going to cause a slowdown in economic activity, whether it's personal consumption, whether it's the cost for business and profitability goes down, so I can see that spread being sort of justified, but as you said, you know, we always talk about this, the trends, especially in the currency, seems more obvious, trends go further and farther than we can imagine, so there may be more weakness to come, but the weakness to date is kind of obvious the reasons, I think, and justified.
4: Yeah, you know, we live here in Canada. The Canadian dollar is weaker uh, against the U.S. dollar, but the Canadian is at, uh, you know, a a seven, eight-year high against the European currency, the euro. It's at a 20-year high against the Japanese yen. You know, one of my other favorite um, sayings over the years is that capital comes to North America. For safety and opportunity. When the world is troubled, you know, the U.S. dollar in particular looks like a safe place to be. We've certainly seen that. But if you were thinking in terms of, gee whiz, we've had such a run here in the U.S. dollar, surely it's overdone. What would would you play? If you're going to buy a currency out there right now, my pick would be the Canadian dollar. And my reason for that, I guess, is the currencies and particularly energy.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, is that just a recon, you know, you've been uh, bullish on the commodities, uh, you know, for a couple of years now. Does that just, I'm talking on a longer term, not your trading basis could go in and out, but the longer term theme, is that just a reconfirmation? Canada is still perceived to be energy and commodities.
4: Canada, I think if, there, if you're sitting in Germany or Switzerland or Tokyo or Singapore and you're looking at putting some capital in, North, in North America, uh, you look at Canada and you think commodities, you know, it's, it's just yeah. that simple.
0: Let's finish with this. I want to go to gold just for a second because we had that little dip down below eighteen hundred. As we talked to Mark and Mirambeald a bit ago, he didn't see anything that suggested to him a shorter term bullish move. You know, not just trading, but even through the year, Uh, five year yes, he said, but not on the short term. So nobody should be surprised. But it's had a pretty good drop since the invasion.
4: Yeah, the invasion, uh, Russia going into Ukraine, spiked gold to an all-time high, nominal terms, at at 275 and since then we've fallen off uh, $275. We're near the lows of the year. The gold stocks are, I think, have made some new lows for the year and off more dramatically than gold itself. You know... A- For several years, we had the tight correlation, tight negative correlation between gold and the U.S. dollar. And then people started to notice that gold also had a tight correlation with negative interest rates. In other words, if interest rates were getting even more negative, that was generally a good environment for gold. Recently, the relationship between gold and real interest rates has kind of broken down. And I'm telling you, if it was still tracking I think the gold price would probably be $200 lower than what it is right now. The reason it's not, I think, is the, as Martin Murenbeel would refer to it as, the geopolitical risk premium. In other words, the, the Ukraine war is probably worth $200 to the price of gold right now. All of the things taken into consideration.
0: I think it's got to remind, though, those people who look at gold that inflation isn't the driver. You know, I think we've had some pretty clear indications of inflation for the last while. It may be one of the variables, but it's not the variable as you go forward. Vic, as usual, I know you've had a busy week. We appreciate you sharing your insights and expertise with us. And I'll tell you my instructions. Be sitting down when you hear the goofy. VictorAdair.ca, VictorAdair.ca. He put his helmet on. He's got his flat jacket on. He's waiting for the goofy. Time now for the Goofy Award. And sometimes the word goofy is totally inadequate to do justice to the story. That's the case this week where we specifically delve into the rationale for enacting the never before used Emergency Act in response to the trucker's convoy. I mean, it's the greatest restriction on individual rights and freedom since the federal government invoked the War Measures Act back in October 1972. Think about this, a total of 230 people were arrested Most charged with mischief, 7.8 million in bank and credit accounts belonging to convoy sympathizers were frozen, which is an unprecedented abuse of personal property rights. I mean, the principal rationale offered by the federal government was that the powers were requested by law enforcement. As the excellent Black Locks reporter notes, Public Safety Minister Mendocino stated at least 11 times that Cabinet was acting on police advice. For example, on February 28th, he stated in quotes, we have had to invoke the Emergency Act and we did so on the basis of nonpartisan professional advice from law enforcement, end of quote. Testifying before the Commons Committee on April 26th, that recently, he said in quotes, we invoked the act because it was the advice of nonpartisan professional law enforcement, end of quote. On April 28th, he said, it was only after we got advice from law enforcement that we invoked the Emergency Act. So you got that. So let's fast forward to the testimony this week by Brenda Lucky. She's RCMP Commissioner. And she was testifying before the Special Joint Committee on the Declaration of Emergency. Now, Senator and former Ottawa Police Chief Vernon White asked, in quotes, We've heard multiple times from ministers and others that the Emergency Act and the tools provided were specifically requested by police leadership. As a law enforcement agency with primacy for national security, did you ask the government or representatives for invocation of the Emergencies Act? Commissioner Lucky, no, there was never a question of requesting the Emergencies Act. Senator White followed up with, in quotes, so you never asked for it. Did you know of any other pol- uh, police leadership that specifically asked the government for the invocation? It's Commissioner Lucky, in quotes, no. Come on, even the most cynical among us has got to be, I think, shocked by the continual revelations of misreporting, misleading statements, outright lies regarding the truckers convoy, including, though, this invocation of the Emergency Act, which suspended individual rights, like property rights, no charges needed, no proof, no recourse, was wrong. It wasn't requested by police or the RCMP. I mean, this is on top of so many other aspects that have been reported that have been completely uh, dismissed, including who funded it. No, it wasn't foreign funding. That canard has been thoroughly disproved. Now, I appreciate there are many people in Canada who are casual about individual rights and freedom. And ironically, in a free society, that's their right. Many prioritize political allegiance over just about, well, anything else, including integrity. I just want you to know I'm not one of them. you got to ask yourself, are you? That's all the time we have this week. But just another reminder, if you can help with the Special O Auction, Special Olympics, is for the golf tournament taking place June 21st out at Mayfair Lakes. If you could help with a sponsorship, please step up. Please give us a hand. You can get all the information you need at mikesmoneytalks.ca. And in the meantime, go out. Have a terrific week.
2: This is the Money Talks Podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.